you to our country. Simka, lunch of us, we need to go back to America. Lunch of us, she said the reason she came to America is to, to because all in my country, the mountain people are all moving into the villages, and there is much hatred. Why? Because no one likes the mountain people. Why? Because they are mountain people. What's it all about? My aquatic jerk. My aquatic jerk. I'll show you the life of the mind. My aquatic jerk. So here we are. 10 years after the attacks of 9-11. That was a strange time to be a comedian. I was scheduled to be in Cedar Rapids the coming weekend, and I expected it to be canceled, but I called the booker, and he told me the show would go on. Two days later, I was on the highway, trying to figure out how the hell I was going to do comedy to a crowd of people in shock, when I was in shock too. I stopped in a small town to get gas and have a bite. I saw this old couple walking by, and I felt connected to them. We were total strangers, but now we all shared something big. It was kind of beautiful. Well, we all know how long that lasted. And of course, I went along with people vandalizing the homes and businesses of Arab Americans. And over the years since, with how many 9-11s worth of civilian Muslim casualties. We were hurt and wanted to hit back and didn't care much about the feelings of the people on the other end or how similar that kind of sloppy anger is to the kind that leads people to fly planes into buildings. Once I dreamt I was at ground zero. I was at the foundation of one of the buildings and there was a big hole and I jumped down but I couldn't get to the bottom because it was so thick with ghosts. Earlier this year, when we got Osama bin Laden, I felt a sense of closure. But when the news showed people whooping it up on the streets like they'd won the Super Bowl, that felt wrong. No, it wasn't as bad as when we saw people cheering in the streets after 9-11, but it felt like a similar kind of primitive. When the police who beat Rodney King were acquitted, there was mass rioting in L.A. King appeared on TV to try to calm things down. I just want to say, can we all get along? I can understand the upset for the first two hours after the verdict, but to keep going on like this and to see the security guard shot on the ground, it's just not right. Those people will never go home to their families again. Please, we can get along here. I mean, we're all stuck here for a while. Let's try to work it out. Since that's a piece of history, I should tell you that I edited it down. And I don't mean to romanticize a guy who has had two more DUIs this year alone, but it always bothered me that King's statement was so widely mocked. The phrase, can't we all get along, was everywhere for years after. In comedy monologues and sketches and sitcoms, you still hear it sometimes, always used for an easy laugh. 
Rodney King stood up in a bad time and instead of asking for vengeance, tried to make things a little better. But he wasn't very polished, so we crucified him. And each time I feel like this inside, there's one thing I want to know. What's so funny about peace, love, and understanding? You know, I heard the original intent of this song What's was so to mock that sentiment. Man, that's depressing. I'm Daniel Kaufman. Welcome to the Myoclonic Jerk Podcast. Today we're going to talk about enemies. We'll talk political enemies with lefty comedian Jimmy Dore. I hope you got what you needed. I know you do a high-quality program. Oh, thank you. And you have a bunch of Poindexter listeners that are very smart. <laughs> as well as an old right-wing buddy of mine. You should loathe me. I don't loathe you. Why I, not? I, I pity you. <laughs> we'll hear from a Greek about the Turks. Maybe I didn't know why, but I knew they were the enemy. And an Israeli about Palestinians. You told me some joke, some horrible racist... Oh my god, I don't even want to remember. Tell me one that you told me. Ooh, ooh, ooh. We'll even get into sports rivalry with a diehard Raiders fan. I'll literally make death threats after the game. To your friends, to your longtime friends. Oh yeah. Noted social psychologist Lee Ross, who spent most of his life studying people in conflict, will talk to us. We have to respond to the world as it's given to us by our senses. But that tendency gets us into trouble. There'll be a new episode of Plane Crash Follies and much more. Unclench, everybody. I would consider myself the progressive. I'm definitely left of center on most things. Would you call yourself a partisan? No. Comedian Jimmy Dore hosts a great podcast called Comedy and Everything Else. He also hosts the Jimmy Dore Show, which you can hear on public radio stations around the country. Of all my lefty friends, he's the most outspoken. Partisanship means that you're not speaking authentically. There is a political usefulness to parties. You need to have coalitions to get things done. But we have one party in America right now. And unfortunately, the liberals and the conservatives and the independents and the libertarians and the Tea Party, and they all have to live inside that one party. And that one party is called corporate America. So when you say you're not a partisan, it's not because you don't feel like you're on a side. It's because you see that as a Democrat-Republican choice. I see most of those choices as being phony choices. Mm -hmm. It's very easy to see the people who disagree with you as an enemy. That's what you have to guard against. Mm -hmm. The thing I can't get over is just the overwhelming ignorance that some people cling to. Like right now, if you watch these Republican debates, it's amazing. Those people, they're able to tie their shoes and walk around that they think it's a bad thing to let a Mexican kid go to college. <laughs> They'd rather send you to prison. Or that HPV vaccine is so controversial, stopping yes, cancer. Yes, like that's yeah. controversial. So it just makes me think like, wow, there's a broken part of our brain. And then those people are just behind us. So why do you think it's important that we not see them as enemies? You have to organize yourself against other people, I guess. So in a sense, they're an enemy, <laughs> but more be an opponent. Maybe that's a better description. What's the difference? My mother-in-law, who I love dearly, is one of the most batshit crazy right wingers. <laughs> right. You know, against gay marriage, a whole deal. Yeah. And, but I wouldn't call her my enemy. There's a real love between us. Do you ever try and grapple with her on these issues? For the sake of peace, you just agree not to talk about it. I'll talk about it anytime, anywhere, anyplace. <laughs> <laughs> You'll just keep bashing your head against the wall. Yes. I'm constantly fascinated by the brain and how it does these crazy things, these mm -hmm. self-sabotaging, contradictory, cognitive dissonance is really interesting to me. Mm -hmm. Projection, it's all in there in the political sphere right now. 
Okay, Moron, what do you want to talk about? Well, the old lady talked me into going to see this movie over the weekend uh, called Capitalism, A Love Story. Did you see that movie? I did see it, Moron. I liked it a lot. It really laid out the case in pretty clear language. It was entertaining at the same time. And it's a movie I think it's important for all Americans to see. How did you find the movie? Did you like it, buddy? Turns out it's a movie by that Michael Moore guy. <laughs> Sean Hannity says that uh, you know, the beauty of this country is that if he tried to make that movie in Cuba, that Fidel Castro would kill him. You know what? That may be true. I fail to see what that has to do. Am I right, though? <laughs> you might be right. But I'm right. You might be right, moron. But what does that have to do with anything? If Michael Moore tried to make a movie in Cuba like that, they'd kill him. I, I don't know what the point is, but I'm just saying that that's a good point. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's a good point. I like to do what I call unproductive arguing on Facebook. Yeah. You'll be talking to these people. They know how to use a computer, but they only look at evidence that backs up their preconceived notions. Right. And I'll basically have a you know an argument with somebody like that, and that will be what moron says, whatever that person says. <laughs> right. I'm impressed with that because I get into those two, and there's a part of me that wants to just say, you're an idiot, but I really try and be reasonable, and it never gets anywhere. And when it's done, I just feel drained and sad and hopeless that, you know, if I can't even get this one person, forget being swayed, but just to even be civilized with me, then what chance do we have? Yes, Dan, I feel the same way. Here's my experience with Facebook. Right? You see all these people that you haven't seen for years, right? And then you go, oh, I didn't know you were an asshole. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. And you have a tinge of racism. <laughs> All right, good for you. So you feel that despair also? Oh, I can make lemonade out of it, but it doesn't make me feel good about humanity. You're a person who spends a lot of his life and career making these arguments. Do you think there's any good that comes of it? Do you think there's any point to making an argument? Yes, this is how all change happens. You know, the civil rights movement, it started at the bottom. It didn't start at the top. Yeah, I mean, this is what I'm wrestling with because I, this is part of me that says, oh, we should be civil and we should have reasonable conversations. And then there's another part of me that says, well, that's not how slavery got abolished. Some people, it's correct for you to see them as your enemy oh. and, to, and to fight them. Yes, at one point, do you stop saying everybody's opinion is equal? Right. Can you imagine sitting around a Thanksgiving table in 1934 Germany? I know they didn't have Thanksgiving. We'll say a Christmas table. <laughs> yeah. Gather. And your mother-in-law would be, right, a Nazi. And then you would. You're like, yeah, I don't, can't say that. She, you know, your mother-in-law hates the Jews. You can't say, well, that's wrong. Yeah. So I think you have to call out that kind of stuff. That's why people who call themselves centrists disgust me the most. All ideas aren't equal. So, so what do we do? We have to fight. But that means talking to people we can't reason with. So I, I know it's really a dilemma, isn't it? I think it's a triage. People who say, keep your government hands off my Medicare, you just have to walk away from. If they're not on board with science or evolution, they're not open to logic. The conversation's or, never going to get anywhere. Right. Better. Facts don't matter. Yeah. I can reason with reasonable people, but those people are reasonable. So what do you do? You ha There's nothing you can do. Some people are going to think Barack Obama's a Muslim no matter what you tell them. Some people are going to think he's a Kenyan. Yeah. And when you meet someone who wants to see Barack Obama's long-form birth certificate, you have to let them go. There's no talking to them. It's pretty sad. There's a triage. You know, it's like I can save this person. I can't save this person. But I know there's people on the right who talk about us in the same terms. And they're wrong. At some point, you have to make a judgment. And when they try to go, oh, people showing up at a Tea Party rally with an M16 is the equivalent of someone showing up at some kind of liberal function with an airing in their nipple. That's yeah. not the same thing. Yeah.
They're like, oh, you got crazies on the left. Yeah, the crazies on the left want to bring peace and love. That's the difference. Yeah, they're much less scary. You know, it's the people standing there, keep your government hands off my Medicare. That's, what do you say to someone like that? I, you, yeah, I've been thinking about this after that whole debt ceiling thing went so right. badly. And I feel like we're never going to make progress. So maybe we should just give them the small government they want. And, you know, there's 100 million people in this country who are for universal health care. That's three times the size of Canada. Why don't we just do it? Why don't we make a big private group where we don't have to ever talk to any right wing people and do everything we want to do? Well, Dan, I had a similar idea. Can I tell you what it was? Sure. We declare war on the South. <laughs> We're going to refight the Civil War. And then when the war starts, we just don't show up. We go, OK, we lost. You win. You get to leave. Right. And so then they get to have their own little country where they get to do all that stupid shit, where they get to have oil companies and banks run their economy and they don't get to have any environmental laws. They get rid of the EPA. They get rid of the Department of Education. They get rid of media regulation. They get rid of all public parks. They get rid of Medicare and Social Security. They get rid of science. They can get rid of all that stuff. And we'll have all that stuff. And then we can compare and contrast. Yeah. Do you have any right-wing friends besides your mother-in-law that uh, you interact with on a regular basis? I have cop friends, and they're mostly right-wingers. Do you ever engage with them? On Facebook, it's hard to engage with them. In person, it's okay, because I went to high school with them. Why do you think it's better in person? Because I'm charming. Yeah? <laughs> yes. In person, I'm charming. <laughs> <laughs> but in text, you're just... Uh... Yeah, I'm scathing. Yeah. I've been a comedian for 20 years, so I respond to people saying dumb things like I'm on stage, like it's cut <laughs> to the quick, yeah. and I'm trying to get a laugh out of strangers at your expense. Oh, because and... it is a public forum, so you know other people are reading what you're saying. Yes. It's just the way the gears work. Oh, so you're different. It's not just that they're perceiving you differently. Yes, and I can tell someone to go fuck themselves in a charming way. There's a way. twinkle in your eye, and they don't. Yes. You know, it's not the same as just the words on black. If you and white. type in "go fuck yourself," that's a lot different than me going "go fuck yourself." You yeah. and your bullshit cop stuff. Get <laughs> out of here. I just want to say this to anybody who might be like, "Oh, what?" People love to tune out from politics. But politics is about, can I see the doctor tomorrow? Politics is, can I hold on to my house? Politics is, can I have a job? Yeah. I'll never forget in 2008, right when the whole economy crashed, I was in St. Louis and I was visiting an old college friend who uh, had just lost her job as a mortgage broker. Her house was underwater. She had two kids with no health insurance. And I said, wow, who are you going to vote for? And she said, oh, I don't pay attention to politics. And I said, do you pay attention to your life? <laughs> yeah, I used to be like that, too, when I was in high school. And I used to sort of be proud, say, ah, I'm not into politics. Like, I was above it, you know? Yes. And then I took a class with Howard Zinn, and he wow. got me all worked up, and I totally changed. The real deal himself. These classes were like 300 students. And, and then the second half would be a big discussion. And there were a lot of right-wingers and a lot of left-wingers. And I remember there's always this uncomfortable moment when somebody started talking, because you don't know if this guy's on your side or is the enemy. And then as soon as you can categorize them, your brain flips and you start listening in another way, you know, where you're trying to tear them down or cheer them on. So I felt like there's something wrong there. It's not honest. Um, Once you got somebody uh, defined as in the other camp, you sort of listen in this combative way and not in an open-minded way. You always have to try to keep an open mind. And as you get older, I think it's easier to keep an open mind about things that you should have an open mind about. Well, how do you decide which is which? And that's interesting because most people, as they get older, they have a harder and harder time having an open mind about anything. You just get cemented. Well, I've been humbled on more than one occasion. 
you know, I've been wrong about things. Jim, you bite your tongue. You know, when you're completely sure about something and then get shown to be completely wrong, that humbles you. That makes me go, oh, maybe the next time I feel as sure as I just did, I'll remember this and remember that even though I'm positive, <laughs> I could still be wrong. And the most recent thing that that happened with was Barack Obama. Oh. I was sure of him and I was very wrong. You know, once you get old, you start to learn. Everything's not what it appears. Just because it looks logical and makes sense, that doesn't mean that that is the case. That we're susceptible to all those little mental glitches that you were talking about. Yes. I have a right-wing friend, too. Since we were kids, his name's David Allswing, and I had to call him up and ask him one important question. Why are we friends? We have nothing in common. We should be enemies, right? No, no. I mean, opposites attract. It's a, Is that really true? It's a fun perspective. I'm stable, have a family, commitments, when you've got none of those. <laughs> I was more thinking about politically, philosophically. Where... What you believe in is that people should be good to one another. I share that belief with you, uh, No, you don't. You, you believe that people should be selfish and mean <laughs> no, to I one another. No, I believe that the free market is the best way to spur economic growth. And what we've seen in the past two years from your president is... See, there we go. To that. Your president. You heard this me. is what I'm getting at. We should be enemies. <laughs> you're conservative, I'm not. But you're religious, I'm not. Why do you do all these nice things for a person who you should... Who I should loathe? You should loathe me. Exactly. <laughs> I don't loathe you. Why I, not? I, I pity you. <laughs> really? Yeah. I mean, look, you see a beggar in the street. I don't kick the beggar. I could. As a I Republican, don't... probably have an impulse to do that. No, Dan, as a libertarian, I think the free market is the way to help these people. Despite all the social spending for your president, we still have people on the street. Why is that? Because people don't have the money. Oh, he hasn't solved every single problem in the world. He's a failure. To the United Way, to the Salvation Army. Thousand points of light. Keep that in mind. Davey, I'm done with a thousand points of light, and here's my proposal. I'm ready. All of us on the left, we're frustrated. Okay, and at this point, I laid out the economic secession plan that you've already heard me discuss with Jimmy Dore. Nobody's against private individuals contracting for health care. And other things, too. Stem cell research. Yeah, private. Then we'll tax ourselves. Yeah, you do. You could do Progressive structure. Yes, private organizations could do that if they wish. And we will. Nobody's stopping you. But I'm not talking about a thousand points of light. I'm talking about almost a partial secession. Where we stop trying to go through government and compromise with all these chowderheads. Yes, exactly. And just do it ourselves. Not go through government. You now see the light. Yes, do it on your own. <laughs> you liking this plan kind of ruins it. <laughs> it's the free market plan. How could I not like it? Something about you liking it makes me think that maybe I'm <laughs> on the wrong track. <laughs> I'm so proud of you. I don't feel good about you feeling good. It seems like we're more partisan than ever, more divided as a country than ever. I disagree with that. You think it's always been this way? You hear every four years, and you'll hear this is the most divisive campaign anybody can remember. Every four years you hear that. Well, anyway, the way I was going to finish that question (laughs) before you disputed the whole premise, (laughs) to whatever extent there's a partisan divide in this country, maybe it's not worse than before. Do you feel like our friendship has any lessons for the world at large? I do think there is importance of civil discourse. You could do it with a smile. You could do it with respect. Uh, I think most of politics is theater. It's bad theater. But the lemmings actually believe it. And you and I don't take it all too seriously. 
we also recognize how utterly powerless we are in the face of this uh, gigantic government <laughs> where we can't do anything. And gigantic corporations. <laughs> so you think it's a recognition that our opinions don't really matter? They do matter. You know, we could disagree. Right. I think people take things really personally. They won't be able to enjoy each other's company. You and I take nothing seriously. But shouldn't we take it seriously? We're talking about wars and poverty, and it's all abstract and theoretical for us, but the stakes are real and they're high. I mean, what are we saying? We're screaming about whether or not we're going to raise income tax from 35 to 39.3. You know, so what are we really arguing about here? We're arguing at the margins. I don't know. I think maybe we should be ashamed of being so tolerant of each other. That's a sign that we're full of it. <laughs> yeah, maybe we're both full of it. That's fine. Uh, we're just comfortable people. Yeah. We don't really care about anything. No, we don't care about too much. And that's why we can be friends, because it's really apathy. <laughs> we watch the politics. It's like our sports, and you like yeah, the Republican yeah. team, and I, or the Libertarian team, and I like the Democrat team. And whoever wins or loses the game, we, it doesn't affect it's our lives. It's callous, really, but we have that in common. So I think that, <laughs> I think that helps with our friendship. So that's it. We're really the same. Yeah, yeah we're callous. We're callow. We're shallow. What, are you a poet now? <laughs> Huh. Oh, well, figured that one out. Took you all these years. I don't want to tell the world they should be more <laughs> callous. And callous. That's the way to get along. No, I think you want to get something here. Okay, roll the tape. Start rolling. It's been right. rolling this entire time. Roll right now. <laughs> Dan, I think the important lesson for people to take from this is that if people have the same goals, but they go about it differently. You don't have the same goals. I sure do, so shut your gun. You don't care about poor people. Admit it. I do care about people. I care about creating jobs, giving people That's lip service. You money. just want the government out of your pocket so you can buy a nice TV and a nice car and be selfish. I don't drive a nice car. I drive a 1998 Nissan Sentra. Well, that's because you got a it's wife a, and a lot of kids to support. Leave my wife out of this. <laughs> I'm going to take off my mic and walk off the stage. No, no, no. Don't do that. <laughs> but what about religion? I mean, most religious people are not tolerant of different ideas. I think you have to recognize that nobody can be sure. And uh, Davey, are you going on record that you're an agnostic? I certainly go on record saying nobody can be sure. And I think I there mean, are a we, lot of religious people who would say they are sure. We act on what we believe. That's all we can do. Wow. <laughs> I thought we were this great model of people who disagree and, and maintain a strong friendship, but really we agree on everything. But our actions are different. You say you're not sure, so you'll do nothing. I'm not sure, but I think I'm right. Right. Our best guesses are different. Yeah. So it sounds like a way for people to get along is to cherish a, a tiny bit of doubt. It's the people who are certain are well, bound to be enemies. What if I know I'm right, but part of my beliefs emphasize tolerance? What's the virtue that, of tolerance when you're tolerating something you know to be wrong? You know, slavery. That's a situation where you wouldn't want compromise. We're not talking about compromise here. Abraham Lincoln, 16th president of the United States, said... Oh, that Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> one ought not compromise between right and wrong. So we ought not take from this conversation that compromise is an inherent virtue. And I never said it was. You put those words in. No, I, I didn't put those words in. I'm just saying that... So if... I, I want to be on record, and I hope it's on okay, me. Okay, you're, you're against compromise. Certainly <laughs> <laughs> compromise. Right. Yeah. Here's a little bit I did working in Toledo just before the 2004 presidential election. Ohio, you guys get to pick it, the next president! <laughs> no, nobody's excited by that guy. But we hate the other guy, that's for sure! Oh, that other guy! 
I don't understand the undecideds. Pick a side already, Jesus. Are you pro-life or pro-choice? Are you for the war or are you against the war? You want to kill babies or grown-ups? Pick a side. <laughs> we got to kill somebody. That's not negotiable. We got to got to do some killing around here, goddammit. You meet a stranger at a family function. You like him. He's funny, charming. You're having a nice conversation. Then he makes an off-handed comment about a politician he likes. Ah, shit, he's with the other side. You don't argue. You don't say anything about it. A wall rises up. The conversation dies out, and you excuse yourself to freshen your drink. When I gave away my political leanings, did you jump to categorize me? And then did you start listening differently? Why does it happen so early that our ideas get frozen? Why are we in such a rush to define ourselves, choose sides, make our minds mausoleums? When was the last time you changed your mind about an issue? Or said in a conversation, that's a good point, I hadn't thought of that. Why should that be so embarrassing? That's growth. Part of it's an evolutionary pull. We survive better in groups. But that same pull leads us to be fearful of outsiders. So we walk around with these two impulses, to embrace our own and to push away others. We're eager to put some in one of these two categories so we'll know how to handle them. We do it with people and we do it with ideas. Did you hear me and David going back and forth? He blames big government, I blame big corporations. We're both on intellectual autopilot. And then there's the problem of fanatics. The ultimate partisanship. The worst of every side making things worse for all of us. Two opposing groups face off. There's tension. Some people try to speak reasonably, but they can't be heard. There's chanting, waving of fists. It's still a level of restraint. And one idiot from the back of one side throws a rock. It arcs over the boundary and hits someone on the other side in the cheek, drawing blood. And then people from that side rush in, swinging. Others bend down to pick up rocks. People on each side get hit, and then even the moderates are hitting back. Even a pacifist is going to have a hard time holding on to pacifism when he's being beaten. Instinct takes over. Your arms go up. You try to shove your attacker away. You flail around. You hit back. It's a bloodbath. All because of one idiot with a rock. I would remind you that extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. And let me remind you also that moderation in the pursuit of justice is no virtue. Sounds great, but only if you're right. And whatever you believe, can we agree that nobody is always right and that throughout history, people who were sure of their rightness have done a lot of damage? So let's give a little credit to unsexy moderation. And a comedian needs to take a stand, right? Everybody needs to take a stand, have an opinion. I don't know. I don't know what's the right thing. Uh, I really don't know. Nobody knows. I, I feel like on TV we see like, they're against the war, and these people are in favor of the war. It's just like it's sports. I think most people, like, you don't even hear about them, but most people are just confused and don't really know what's right. I'm, 
You can't have a protest like that, you know. Like, <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> the undecided, but doubt is scary. Doubt is dark woods. It's an old, deep urge to find a clearing, put down stakes, make a home. The longer you live in a place, the more it becomes part of you, and metaphoric moving is harder than the real thing. Those election eve undecided I made fun of earlier, I think are mostly just not paying attention. But there needs to be a proud, enlightened undecided who get there not from apathy or ignorance, but from confusion that's earned. Hey, have you heard this one? Uh, how many mountain people do it take to milk the goat? Well, but I'm sure I don't know. Uh, five. <laughs> one to hold the bishes and four to raise the goat up and down. Greeks hate Turks, right? Traditionally. This is my old buddy, Christophoros Peskes. Where does that go back to? It goes back to the Byzantine emperors who are Christian Orthodox. And the Turks came, the Arabs came, and they took over Istanbul. It was Constantinople back then, right? In even some songs, it is called Constantinople. That's the only reason I know. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, Greece was occupied by the Turks. Until 1821, when Greece revolted and became an independent nation. Now, you were not born in Greece. I was born in Cyprus. Tell people what Cyprus is. <laughs> Cyprus is a small country yeah. of Greek origin. 80% were Greek and 20% were Turkish. Did you have Turkish friends when you were a little boy? No, but my father did. We used to go to soccer games with them. So you didn't have any problems with them? I mean, for us, they were the Turks. There was always a fire burning. Maybe I didn't know why, but I knew they were the enemy. But why were they the enemy? Because they were the Turks. They occupied Istanbul. But there was nothing going on Uh, in the present day. Well, something you don't understand in America. History is very important. But your father went to soccer games with them. So what kind of enemy is that? Well, they were the Turks. They occupied Istanbul. That's what you were taught. You were raised to think of them as the enemy. Of course. And vice versa. Of course. They were different. They were Muslims. Right. And we were Christians. In 1821, they slaughtered the Archbishop of Cyprus, blah, blah. You know, there are incidents throughout history. Okay, didn't you tell me that the Greeks did some bad things to the Turks? Oh, yes, of course. Okay, so 1974. The Turks invade. There was an actual war, but they were much stronger. And they occupied half of Cyprus. The northern half. And they're still there. You can't go back to the city you were born in. I am a refugee. Now, I remember in college, you would tell me about the Turks. It was with passion, and you hated the Turks, and you wanted me as your friend to also hate the Turks. Hate by association. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But now, today, you don't hate them. No. Why not? Well... What changed? I think I am a better person than I used to be, or more mature. I hope so. used to be horrible. (laughs) I couldn't understand people have the right to exercise their own religion. I was brought to believe that Christianity had ethical superiority. How did you change? Mm. Was it just gradual or? Spending time in the States, 
when you're too close to the problem, it's always too heated. When you distance yourself, you can see the other side. Mm-hmm. Still, I think I have a right to go back to my house. You still have some anger, but I mean, I guess... No, I don't have anger. I think there are issues and they need to be resolved. But if we want to get better, we also need to forgive. I remember you took me to the borderline when I visited you in Cyprus. We walked into the middle, like a mile wide or something in between. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you said, if I go farther, they might shoot me. It was still a state of war. We were standing between two countries, mm-hmm. no man's land. Now you're allowed to pass, but it would mean that I recognize the Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus as the lawful occupant of that land. Right. I'm not going to do. Do you think this is ever going to be resolved? It came very close like five years ago. The president of the United Nations had a plan. Cyprus would be one country with the Greek state and the Turkish state. And the Greek side turned it down. What do you think? Is it going to be settled? I hope. I think we are not so bad. I mean, if you look at Israel and Palestine, you have dead people all the time. All our issues are solved through a civilized dialogue. Yeah. It's important that people don't die over this. Well, you're a coward. <laughs> I'm a humanist. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I just wish that we could end this by you telling me you have Turkish friends now. Why don't you have any Turkish friends? Well, You're ruining I mean... my podcast. <laughs> but there are no Turkish people living in Greece. People travel back and forth a lot. Actually, I went to Turkey four years ago. And how are you received there? Are people nice to you? Oh, yeah, very nice. It's a beautiful, beautiful city, Istanbul. And how do you feel about people when you're there? The Turks all around you. Do you In your gut, do you have any kind of... None whatsoever. Nothing bad. I feel like I'm home. Wow. That's the funny part. I mean, you realize once you go there, that is very similar to what you were. Isn't that interesting? It's like the people who are closest hate each other the most. And you know, I'm a cook, and the cuisines are so similar. And it tells you that people, you know, live... We are like Baba Ganoush. Let's get along. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Actually, we are like Tzatziki. Ah, okay. <laughs> Are there some people who won't make peace, even on a personal level? There are a lot of hardcore people who are not willing to. And you think the difference between you and them is just you traveled, you saw the world, you got some distance? Um, I'm not sure. You're smarter, right? I am better than everybody else. Now <laughs> I have true ethical superiority. Oh, right. You used to think you had ethical superiority. But now I do. <laughs> Take me back to Constantinople Oh, you can't go back To Constantinople Now it's Istanbul Not Constantinople Why did Constantinople get the works? That's nobody's person by the Turks My girlfriend, Renee Her upstairs neighbor is a member of the art mafia You're Spalding Gray She plays her quadraphonic torture box Full blast above us Every night it's Bob Dylan's Sarah Something must have happened to her way back then, and she really... I know it could be worse, it, but every night, it's unbelievable. It's like you're in the room with it. I mean, if it was just 1.30 in the morning, fine. It would be like feeding time. You could get through it. But it's diabolical. It's 1.36 in the morning. It's 2.10 in the morning. It's 3.15 in the morning. It's 4.11 in the morning. What do you do? You call the police. They come. She turns it down. They leave. She turns it up. They come. She turns it down. They leave. She turns it up. I mean, she's up there. She gets these guys in from the Midwest that want to become rich and famous in a year, make five-figure number here in Soho. They come in. They're sleeping in sleeping bags on her floor. Whenever we complain, she sends them down and they go, hey, look, man, New York is party city. That's why we moved here, you see. You can have parties on weeknights. Now, if you don't dig it, you should move to the country, old man. I go back. I'm trying to practice my Buddhist tolerance, which in New York City could be translated one big scapist rationalization, right? I mean, I 
I'm turning all my cheeks to the wall at this point. <laughs> Renee is not practicing Buddhist tolerance. She's walking up and down. She's got steam screaming out of her navel. And there are people that say we should start a collection to hire a vigilante to off this woman, to kill her. And I find I'm not saying no. That's how New York has changed me. I'm willing to put money into the pot. I mean, listen, listen, listen. When I was back in Boston in 1964 with my people, right? White bread, homogeneous, brick wall, Boston. Back in 1964 when they had the, what would you call it then? It was a hi-fi. Not to call, if a hi-fi was on too loud above me, I would simply make a phone call. I would just call up, I would pick up the phone and go, hi, hi, Puffy, hi. <laughs> Hi, Spuddy Gray down here. Hi, guys. Yeah, I, just a few notches. I wouldn't ask you to do it, but I got an early dance class in the morning. Right. Yep, thanks a lot, Puff. Mm -hmm. Merry Christmas to you, too, guys. Bye. Write down. We had the common language. Renee's father was in the Jewish mafia. She knows the language. She grew up in the streets of New York. She calls up and goes, Bet you wanna die, right, bitch, cunt? I'll beat your fucking face in with a baseball bat. Bitch, cunt, die, die, die! <laughs> goes louder. Renee's convinced the woman's a masochist and is getting off on the language. So the other day, I am walking out of her loft. I have a, a, an empty Molson Gold bottle in my hand. I, I don't know, I guess I was going to get my nickel back. And, and I'm seized with these party sounds upstairs. I'm taking, it's not, it's, I'm not out of control. It's a classic Greek rage. My head and gut are completely balanced. My gut is wrenching with butterflies. My head has that old ticker tape going across the forehead, you know, that old adage, all weakness tends to corrupt. Impotence corrupts absolutely. And I just took that bottle and boom, hurled it. It went up two flights of stairs, exploded, boom, glass everywhere like a glass hand grenade. They charged out with their bats and guns. I ran. Because it was an act of passion, I forgot to tell Renee I was going to do it, and she was way behind me picking up plastic garbage bags. So by the time she got to the door, they caught her. But they didn't do anything because she was innocent. She had no idea what they were talking about, and they recognized this innocence, so they didn't kill her. So there's hope. But I say, how, how does a country like America or, or rather, how does America, because certainly there's no country like it, begin to find the language to negotiate a talk with a country like Russia or Libya? If I can't even begin to get it with my people on the corner of Broadway and John Street, Look at this. All of the whites are cheering for the Springboks. All of the blacks are cheering for England. Sorry, I'm late. I've just been at a meeting of the National Sports Executive. There's a strong support to drop the Springbok emblem and colors all together. This could be the last time we have to look at the green and gold. Comrades. I believe we should restore the Springboks. Restore their name and their colors. Let me tell you why. In Polsmoor prison, all of my jailers were Afrikaners. For 27 years, I studied them. I learned their language, read their books, 
I had to know my enemy before I could prevail against them. And we did prevail, all of us here. Our enemy is no longer the Africana. They are our fellow South Africans, our partners in democracy. And they treasure Springbok rugby. If we take that away, we lose them. We prove that we are what they feared we would be. We have to be better than that. We have to surprise them with the compassion, with restraint and generosity. I know all of the things they denied us, but this is no time to celebrate petty revenge. This is the time to build our nation using every single brick available to us, even if that brick comes wrapped in green and gold. That was from Invictus, a movie about how Nelson Mandela used rugby to bring his country together after the fall of apartheid. It's a beautiful story, but notice, Mandela united South Africans by turning them against new others. But he didn't get rid of us and them entirely. There's people that just love to beat the Raiders and they really rub it in. That's why I moved out of Denver. Here's comedian and author Brian Petrovka. Because people would be dancing on the tables just at the Raiders losing, not even the Broncos winning. And the Raiders started out 0-4. And they were so happy. And I just yelled at everyone and left and called Marianne and said, <laughs> I'm moving out to be with you. Fuck this. Now. You were a Raiders fan then. Yeah. When did it start? You were never from Oakland, so why? In fifth grade, PE, we were doing a drill where we all got in a line and the coach would throw a pass to you. But you had to say who you were. And I didn't know anyone. So someone gave me a Raider name. I think it was Dave Casper. And I went out and I caught a pass. And then they were on the front cover of Sports Illustrated. And I'm like, those uniforms are awesome. So I started studying it, and then I just became engrossed in it. I never got off the bandwagon. Did you hate the other teams? Oh, yeah. I feel like Linda Blair during the game. I mean, I talk the worst shit imaginable. I pray that someone had a career-ending injury at the top of my lungs. And I mean, <laughs> really evil. I feel karmically bad for like a week. And I'm completely fucking psychotic. It overwhelms any logic. If I had a button to push to just end the world, I would after one loss. I called Stanhope after, and I was just speaking in tongues to him for 30 minutes. And he goes, you should lose more often. This is great. <laughs> That's so funny. Like, all this emotion for a team you picked because you like their uniforms. You kind of just randomly... Oh, believe me. Everything you're saying is exactly what I say the next day. It's like trying to describe race. What is this team? Is it the uniform? That can change. Is it players? That can change. The city can change. The name can change. What is it? Nothing. <laughs> What if they became the Orlando Raiders? Would it ruin it for you? It's a good question because, okay, say their owner dies. Say they changed their logo and colors, yeah. moved, and <laughs> maybe changed their name. Answer each step. All right, they just moved. Where'd they move? To Orlando? I don't know. Tulsa. I'd probably still <laughs> like him, but it would... Even though you have no connection to Oakland. I know, but I just know <laughs> them from my whole life as the California team. What if they stayed in Oakland, but they changed their uniforms? No more silver and black. I'd probably get used to it, but I wouldn't like it. What if they changed their name to the Oakland Onslaught? I think I would not like them anymore. The it's name the, exact the Raiders. Same players, same uniforms, same city. 
Well, like, what if... Do you think Van Halen would lose a lot of fans if their second album, they changed the name to Skinny Dippers or something? <laughs> like, yeah, I do. But if I like the music, I wouldn't care. I know. Actually, I'd probably like them more if they did something right. crazy like that. It all comes back to, what is this team you like? Right. I'm just thinking this is another form of tribalism. Yes. The Raider fans seem to have something in common because they buy into that philosophy of we're going to do it fucking our way. So there does seem to be this community where if you meet a Raider fan, you're instantly friends. Where I don't think that happens with like Bengal fans when they meet randomly. Right. But there's always a flip side to that. If you're more together, that means you're more against the other guy. Yeah, I don't know, because uh, Bill Cruz is a Bronco fan, and I like him, the Drury's. But in general, we hate our enemies, so we hate all their fans. But the Denver fans, you're bonded to them in a way, because you're both on this rivalry that nobody else gives a shit about. It's kind of like boxers who are friends outside the ring, but then once you get in the ring, that goes out the window. Have you ever watched a game with them? Yeah. And how is that? It stays pretty even as it's going. And we're kind of putting each other's teams down. And then as it comes down to crunch time, we're both purple in the face. And I'll literally make death threats after the game. (laughs) To your friends, to your longtime friends. Oh, yeah. That's so funny. And just hatred against the universe and be out of my mind. But you kind (laughs) of know what? You have enough uh, self-preservation to just get away when you're at that moment. It's like, I'm just I mean, going, you get away or people get away I'll from go you. away home and then maybe I'll get drunker and type stuff on the computer. But everyone just understands. <laughs> <laughs> I'd post after the game, just ill will to the maximum. <laughs> I'm looking at all of them now. Really? Yeah. Oh, oh my God. That's... There's 3,400 results for Powski. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a poem. The only thing worth nothing. The slow death of your family. <laughs> fuck you, fuck pain, and fuck Marty Worth. 4307 North Lincoln, Chicago is where I live. posting my address. Yeah. Come to me. I'm bored as fuck. Very proud of that. You give your real address, yeah, and you dare them to come. And if they had come, you would have fought. Yes, to death. Wow. If they would have came, like, within five minutes. Right, 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 yeah. If they came the next day, you'd be... Let's have a beer. What if they came? Ding dong. Hey, I came to fight. I love Denver. Let's do a fake fight and post it so we don't lose our reputation. (laughs) God, those are out there. That's, that's so funny. Awesome. <laughs> See, that's where this seems different than real tribalism because on Sunday, you're passionate and it's 100% real, but real tribalism, there's no days off from it. You're not friends with your real enemies. It's this artificial war, but at the end of a real war, there's stakes. But this is just... Yeah, maybe there's a need to get that part out of us that's in our DNA. So we need to go through some sort of ritual. Do you think there's anything from this metaphor that could teach us about world peace? (laughs) (laughs) That it's genetically unobtainable. When I saw him that morning, and now, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for Plane Crash Follies with a new cast of characters each and every episode. We take you now, as always, to the interior of a commercial airliner that is plummeting to a terrible end. Baby, I love you so much. I don't think we're going to make it. No, 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 it's okay. Be strong. I'm just so thankful for all the time we... I love you too. Um, maybe in another world we can meet, you know? Excuse me, I, um, I'm just wondering if I could, please, if I could just get the phone. Um, I'm kind of busy right now. 
Yeah, I know, but I would like to call my wife too, and there's, there's not much time. Look, buddy, I was here first. Yes, okay? I know, but there's only one phone per row, man. So? Excuse me for a sec, honey. Come on, man! Don't be an asshole. I'm the asshole. Okay, while you were panicking, I had the foresight to get the phone, swipe the card, I pay for it, it's mine. Okay, but now, don't you think the fair thing is that you share the phone? You wouldn't say that if you found it first. Yes, I would. Oh, you say that now, no, but I... Give me the phone. No, give me the phone. No, you get away. No Ow. You let go. Ow, God damn it. That's hey, right. I love you, honey. Hey, I love hey. you. Lady, you should be happy. Pick better next time. Stop talking to my wife. You suck. Out of the ashes of Buenos Aires comes anger. The only good bug is a dead bug. In Geneva, the Federal Council convenes. We must meet the threat with our valor, our blood, indeed with our very lives, to ensure that human civilization, not insect, dominates this galaxy now and always. We now break net and take you live to Fleet Battle Station Ticonderoga, where the men and women of the Federal Armed Services prepare to attack. There's a bunch of MI kids that look like they could eat bugs for lunch. <laughs> yum, yum, yum. So, Trooper, you're not too worried about fighting the arachnids? Hey, shoot a nuke down a bug hole, you got a lot of dead bugs, I just right? hope it's not over before we get some. <laughs> <laughs> some say the bugs were provoked by the intrusion of humans into their natural habitat, that a live and let live policy is preferable to war with the bugs. Let me tell you something. I'm from Buenos Aires, and I say kill them all! Yeah! Oh, yeah! Yeah! I was in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania like uh, two months ago. Now here's Isaac Whitty. I was walking over a bridge, and there was a boat going under the bridge, and all the people on the boat were waving at the people on the bridge, and all the strangers on the bridge were waving at the strangers on the boat. This is when I realized people love to say hello as long as there is no obligation to talk to them later. People don't wave at strangers in regular society. There's a lot of dissension in society, but there is something about boats and bridges that bring people together. Like, I am on a bridge, and you're on a boat. Hi! Yay! If that same guy were to turn 90 degrees and start waving at another person on the bridge, that would be insane. So what are you doing? We're bridge people. Bridge people don't wave at bridge people. Bridge people wave at boat people. It's like people just instinctively wanted to do it. It was just, it's not natural. I think it brings people together to the point where if we use it correctly, we could bring peace in the Middle East. Put all the Jews on a boat. Put all the Palestinians on a bridge. Oh, I hate those. They've taken my land and thrown... 
<laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> we forgive you! Basta, I have something to tell oh. you, but I don't know how I'm going to be telling you. Is it that you love me? No. You know those mountain people jokes you have been telling? Yeah. Well, I am a mountain person, and this is for my mother, and this is for my father, this is for my grandfather. I hope you have a smart family. Recently, my Israeli cousin Aryeh, who I always knew as an extreme right-winger, posted a link on Facebook that seemed like something only a peacenik would post, and I didn't know what to make of it. I emailed him, what's going on? He said, I've changed, I'm a lefty now. I couldn't believe it. Do you remember how you used to feel about Arabs when you were younger? Yes. How did you see them? As the enemy, as if all of them are there to kill me. I wouldn't even call them second-class citizens. At that period, it was so bad that I couldn't relate to them. I would just hear that word. How old were you when I visited you in Israel? Twelve. Yeah, I was pretty right-wing then. Yeah, you, know, you were. Really... You were a little racist. You told me some joke. There's some horrible racist... Oh my god, I don't even want to remember those jokes. Tell me one that you told me. Ooh, ooh, it ooh. It upset me. Ooh, I'm afraid of this one. It's like, uh, what is a good Arab? Oh, jeez. A dead Arab, yeah, yeah, I said that. And you were just smi- I think that was- Yeah, I thought it was funny, and now I'm embarrassed to think about that. It's crazy. Yeah, and do you remember, I reacted, and you probably just thought, oh, that's my crazy left-wing cousin. Yeah, I was always thinking, he's so left-wing, he's like a Palestinian, <laughs> and then- <laughs> Yeah, that's how you <laughs> saw me, because I know other Jews think, oh, he doesn't get it, he doesn't live here. He yeah, thinks- exactly, that's pretty much what I was thinking. How do you think you became a racist in the first place? I mean, I don't think your parents were racist. No, no, no. It's not my parents at all. You see the terrorist attacks, and then you start generalizing. Uh-huh. And I was also very religious, and it's just this militant feeling of Israel belonging to the Jewish people. And uh... You probably never knew any Arabs when you were a kid. No. So it's just this cartoon idea of this guy with fangs or something. Yeah. Do you remember the first Arab you ever met? I didn't have any relationship with Arabs. Towards the end of high school, we would drive over to this Arab village near Jerusalem called Abu Ghosh. Why? It's known to have good hummus and a good hookah <laughs> bar and good baklava, so we got friendly with the waiters, with the owners of the stores. Ah. We had this concept that Abu Ghosh is a friendly Arab village, and they're sort of an exception. That's what racists say about black people, like, they're the good ones. Yeah, but that started the process of transferring into... A human being? Yes. <laughs> Do you remember the first Arab you had a relationship with? Much later, when I came to London. Before coming to London, I had a goal. I wanted to live with Arabs in an equal situation. What uh, made you want to have that goal? While I was serving in the army, I was inside the villages, and it was really hard because on one hand, I was protecting Israelis, but I saw people that their life was just very... I would never want to live the way they were living. Very crowded. To get short distances would take them several hours just because they can't go on roads that are meant for Israelis only. How would I feel living under these conditions? I would hate the other side. And I just realized that these are good people, that most of them do want to live in peace with Israel. And it's just that the situation is making them in this very weak position during the Holocaust. The Jews were easy to blame because the situation was so bad. So I was thinking we're creating a situation that they're so weak and their life is so horrible that they won't have the opportunity to like us. That's interesting that being in the army and being in these situations kind of open your heart to them. Since you're probably in dangerous situations, I could see that making a person more racist. 
because yes. you're scared, so you just dehumanize them. It's interesting that that didn't happen to you. There were situations that I did think a little bit in that way. I had fourth friends that were killed in the beginning of the war in Lebanon, and I remember having friends seriously injured, taking them out in our tank. It's amazing to think about. You're a bunch of kids, you know? I think yep. about you as an 18-year-old in this kind of situation. Yep, with a helmet and a you're, gun. You're just a stupid kid. In a Jeep, <laughs> getting Molotov cocktails on the windows. Wow. And, but towards the end of the service, I started to understand things in a better perspective. I think a lot of Arabs would think, like, oh, a guy in the Israeli army, like, he's the enemy. And it's really that experience and being close and being in their streets and in their homes, maybe, that made you see them as more human and or as human. Yeah. The army, which people think of as this right-wing machine, is, right, but it's not. it moderated you. It did moderate me. My lieutenant was very right-wing, uh -huh. but my captain, he is a left-winger. They said that we need to realize that we're dealing with people and we need to respect them. In the States, the army tends to be higher up in the ranks. It tends to be more and more right-wing. But I guess in the Israeli army, because it's mandatory for every Israeli citizen, yeah. left-wingers can advance, and it's not. Yes. They're liberal generals. General Dani Atom, he's very active in uh, achieving peace. Uh -huh. And he's not only an ex-general of the IDF, he's also the ex-chief of the Mossad. Oh, wow. Which is like your CIA. No, CIA is like your Mossad. <laughs> so, okay, so you wanted to go to London just three years ago. Yes. I was the only Israeli one out of the 180 students. Yeah. They sent us emails and they said, we have students from the following countries. I saw the United Arab Emirates, Syria, Iran, <laughs> the first lecture. This girl asked, where are you from? I would say Israel. Oh, and I would say, where are you from? Syria. And then another person next to her was from Egypt. In the beginning, I was a little bit wary, thinking, what are they thinking about me? But when we started talking and we started saying a little bit jokes, slowly I was starting to gather more and more Arab friends. And I didn't have a problem to tell them I'm Israeli. You had non-political relationships, but that affected your politics. But it was very hard for me to call myself a left-winger. Do you remember in the beginning, you were starting to have these thoughts, and you were you fighting them off? Like, yes, no. I was fighting the thoughts. And um, I went also to some events of uh, Peace Now UK and Merits UK, which are actually organizations that I despised when I was living in Israel. <laughs> and whenever I go back to Israel and I talk to my friends that are very right-wing, it's very hard to get them to listen because they can't talk within reason. It's... But you're someone who's been on both sides. Do you know where they're coming from? Yes. I was speaking to an Israeli, and she said, we're all right-wing deep down. We all have this love for Israel, and we like all these territories. But at the end of the day, we need a solution that's good for our country, not a solution that's going to eat it alive. So when you deal with your right-wing friends and family now, do you feel frustrated? To a lot of them, uh, I'll say, I was in your shoes, and not only that, I was even worse than you. But whenever I see a situation that it's just not going to work, I just avoid the conflict. You just want to have your uh, dinner or whatever and not have a yeah, fight. Yeah, exactly. You know, the way I was thinking, no one you can tell me the most rational reason, but I'll still think that you're saying bullshit. Yeah. It's a war that's very hard to win. But you changed. You know the secret. It's not that easy. To pull someone out of their routine, tell them to leave their comfort zone, it was hard for me in the beginning. So what, your close friends and family in Israel, where are you in relation to them politically? I used to be to the right of them, and now I'm to the left of them. And so do they, like, what happened to you? Or... Yeah, they're shocked, and a lot of them will give comments like, look what London did to you, and 
Someone said, I want to vomit on your slogans. And <laughs> what was the slogan? Israel is talking to Hamas about releasing Kilad Shalit, the Israeli soldier. So I said, they're talking about the life of one person, but they're not willing to talk to Hamas about saving the life of millions of Israelis. And uh, No, but you were in the army. Do you feel anger about this guy? And how... Yeah, I do feel a lot of anger about Hamas, and I see Hamas as a terrorist organization. Mm -hmm. But I think the best thing will be to talk to them, because as long as Israel is saying we don't talk to them, they just get stronger. So why not start the dialogue? Yeah, I mean, what's the alternative? Yeah. But if you said these things to a right-winger, you know basically everything they'd say back to you. Yeah. And you know what you'd say back to that, and you know what they'd say back to that. It's like all the arguments, everybody knows both sides. I start fuming. It gets me angry uh, how blocked they are. I feel so good that I finally won with you. Mm -hmm. It took me 10 years to turn you around. You thought I was crazy, but maybe plant a little seed of doubt so that you could turn into a good person. It had something to do with it, but it's more... Mostly it was me, right? Uh, I will, okay, let's say... <laughs> Mostly it was your cousin who visited Israel once. And... Exactly. Well, you're welcome. Yeah, thank you very much. Hello there, this is your old pal Grover. And today I'm going to talk to you about near and far. Hmm? Okay, here goes. First... This is near. Right here, near. Hmm? This is far. This is near. You see? You'll hear people in a conflict tell outsiders who are critical, mind your own business. But what I'm hearing from Christo and Aryeh is that there's a sense in which being inside makes it hard to see things clearly that you need to step back, get perspective. And I've been turning it over and over in my head because I found all this distance stuff confusing. Far. Because doesn't distance make it easier to demonize the other side? It's easier to voice feelings of blow them all to hell to people who are far away. We can see them as caricatures because we don't really know them, and we never have to see their suffering. It's easier to kill somebody with a sniper rifle than a knife. Easier still to do it by pressing a button in a room thousands of miles away. Near. But then when you're near someone, there are way more opportunities for friction. We fight the people right next to us. The people next to us are the ones who step on our feet, whose breath stinks, whose elbow sits on the single armrest between us, whose dogs bark all day and shit on our lawn. Far. We see a problem with distance on the internet. Textual assault. Almost everyone has indulged at some point. It's so easy to lash out. You feel safe. You're alone. But your words have reach. They zip through the air and through wires and can go all over the world to someone else whose body is alone in another room. And you can hurt them. You just wiggle your fingers over a keyboard for a few seconds, and now someone on another continent is in a bad mood. But then what happens? Then they wiggle their fingers and say something awful back. And then you feel lousy. Then what? Do you apologize? Do you try to change the tone? Or do you think of something even worse to say? Wiggle, wiggle, enter. We write things we'd never say to another person's face. Why? Why do we say, Go fuck yourself, on Facebook, but, Go fuck yourself, in person? I think because it's hard to hurt someone directly. This came up in the games episode. We don't lash out, partly because we don't want to get hit back. But I don't think it's all self-preservation. There's sympathy in us, too. 
I think the answer is this. It's not distance from your enemies that helps. It's distance from the conflict, and particularly distance from your side. What helped my cousin change was going to a neutral third ground. He got distance from the conflict, and that let him get closer to the other side. When we fight with our neighbors, it's still from our side of the fence or our side of the wall. We're close enough to bother each other, but there's still a divide that keeps us from getting anywhere near each other's view of things. It's like us in cars. Sealed up in our little bubble, we curse at people in their bubbles. We yell, give them the finger. Very similar to how we act online. But you rarely see this kind of behavior on a sidewalk. When you're walking, if you bump into another person, most of the time, you both say sorry. It's an instinct. Often when it was likely their fault, you still say excuse me. Most of us don't really want to fight. Nearness is not the same as closeness, and distance is not the same as perspective. War is not about proximity, it's about disconnect. So you really are going to Pakistan then? I'm simply going to prove to Hindus here and Muslims there that the only devils in the world are those running around in our own hearts. And that is where all our battles ought to be fought. I want to look at some of those mental glitches Jimmy talked about before, but not the ones that make us get facts wrong. Let's look at the glitches that make us get each other wrong. Chief among them is the fundamental attribution error. I think it's no coincidence that one of the most routine examples of the fundamental attribution error happens when we're driving. Somebody cuts you off, you think, asshole. You cut somebody else off, you think, oops, I didn't see him there. Or, ah, I know I shouldn't do this, but I'm really in a hurry. The fundamental attribution error. It's our tendency to ignore context when looking at others and rush to judgments about their character. I think it comes up a lot when relationships go bad. And it seems to be a big part of how enemies see each other. The phrase fundamental attribution error was coined by Lee Ross. I called him up to talk about it. But he said if we're going to talk conflict, we first have to talk about something he calls naive realism. What is the world out there? It's a blooming confusion of neutrinos and neutrons and all that other stuff. That's the world. Color, mass, time. Those things are illusions. They're at least the product of the kind of meat that we're made of and the kind of stuff that's out there. We're made of stardust and so is all the stuff out there. And our experience of reality is a product of the interaction between these two types of stardust. What's out there and what's in us. But we never realize we see it as what's out there. You know, husbands and wives arguing about whether the room is too hot or too cold. And each one deeply believes <laughs> that they're feeling the room as it really is. And there's something wrong with their spouse that makes them insensitive to the cold, just like they're insensitive to everything else. <laughs> and they couldn't be otherwise. We have to respond to the world as it's given to us by our senses. But that tendency gets us into trouble. We proceed from the assumption that we can use our own perceptions to simulate the perceptions of other people. And that's how we get through the world. We are pretty good at interpreting how people are going to respond. We say, if I would like it, they'll like it. If I don't like it, they won't like it. A lot of the time, it's pretty useful. But in a world 
where different people have very different kinds of experiences and education and class or gender, that assumption is less good. And even when we come to recognize as adults that not everyone sees things the way we do, we still retain the sense that our way of seeing things is the real way, the right way. So in work that I've done with Palestinians and Israelis or Irish Catholics and Protestants, people of goodwill on both sides are very eager to get together with the other side so they can explain how things (laughs) really are. No one ever goes into those meetings saying, I want to meet the other side because after I talk to them, I'll stop perceiving the world incorrectly. They have the conviction that if the other people are of goodwill, they'll change their views. And if they don't change their views, they're not people of goodwill. Does this phenomenon increase when people are in conflict? The attributions become increasingly malevolent. Instead of just saying, well, it takes all kinds to make a world, we see the particular way that they see the world as a product of something uniquely malicious about them. And then we have the essential element of conflict, that you see the other side not just as different or wrong, but as evil. I find this in personal relationships, too. If somebody hurts you or if you hurt somebody else, I've been on both sides of this. I don't really want to understand them. I don't want to sympathize with them. I don't want to say they hurt me justifiably. I want to see someone who hurt me as a bad person. Well, that's our first impulse. Although, if we ask most people, how often have you deliberately done something hurtful to someone? Mm -hmm. Most people would say they virtually never Never, have intentionally done anything to hurt someone. And yet they often feel that others have hurt them. And they think they either knew it would hurt us or they should have known. Right. So why do we do that? Well, that's where the fundamental attribution error comes in. When it comes to other people, we make trade attributions. When it comes to ourselves, we're much more inclined to make situational attributions. There's a lot of different reasons for that. We get to see our behavior in lots of different situations, so we know it doesn't reflect us. We've got a much bigger sample size when it comes to our own behavior. And also, we have access to our private mental life, to what our intentions were. Our overt behavior often doesn't correspond to our private feelings. And even more than that, when we're dealing with other people, they are the focus of our attention. When it comes to me, I don't see myself as I'm acting. My attention is focused on the situation. And interestingly, if we make someone look in the mirror or show them a video replay of their behavior, they make more observer-like attributions about themselves. They take more responsibility for their action and see it more as a reflection of their personality. So what exactly did you do with Jews and Palestinians? Sometimes telling them that the most useful thing to do is not to try and negotiate the Middle East peace (laughs) while you're meeting with the other (laughs) side. Start small. But just to experience each other as human beings. And in Ireland, the group we worked with that brought together Protestants and Catholics, they would ask people, what do you want for your community? And they wouldn't disagree very much. And then you'd ask them, what do you want your own life and the life of your family to look like? And they'd be identical. And so have them come to realize that outside of their views about the conflict, they're not very different at all. Yeah. 
I grew up with this idea of Arabs as other and as almost monsters. And one thing that changed me dramatically was not any political essay, but I started liking these Iranian movies, which are just these simple little family dramas. Yeah, and you saw them as real people. Yeah. Yeah. We also study barriers to dispute resolution. There's something called reactive devaluation, that the act of putting an offer on the table makes it less attractive. In fact, in a study in the post-Oslo negotiations, it was just a technical negotiation. Israelis liked the Palestinian proposal when it was attributed to Israelis more than they liked the Israeli offer when it was attributed to the Palestinians. Huh. We also study some things that help us overcome barriers, positive expectations. When it comes time to elect a pope, even though they need two-thirds plus one of the voting cardinals, even though you have all these difficult issues, they're always able to resolve it because they negotiate knowing that they'll succeed. And that changes it. So we brought that into the laboratory and showed that when people negotiate and they're told that everyone that's done the task in the past has succeeded, they become much more likely to succeed. They like the other party better, and they see the other side as making bigger concessions. Sometimes we do it by emphasizing that failure isn't an option. In the Middle East, most of the time, parties negotiate expecting to fail and wanting to make sure that they come out of it with a better story than the other side about who's responsible for the failure. Sometimes you can see dramatic results. I've been in a situation where a Palestinian was asked a question about the Holocaust and the Nakba, are the equivalent? And this Palestinian said, you can't talk about them in the same breath. The Nakba was a terrible event, and it was unjust, but the Holocaust is a defining event of the 20th century. And that had an enormous impact on the Jews that were there. In the same way, when Sadat went to Jerusalem, he made no concession. He took the absolute hardline position. But for Israelis, the fact that he did something that they couldn't imagine any Egyptian leader would do, not only to negotiate, but to come to Jerusalem and appear before the Knesset, that produced a kind of unfreezing that was very dramatic. Unfortunately, it also cost him his life. So do you feel optimistic going forward? Optimistic about what? About <laughs> humanity's chances of surviving, of working things Humanity? <laughs> <laughs> Tell me in 30 seconds or less. Anwar Sadat said, peace is impossible. Fortunately, it's also inevitable. I'm basically an optimist about the human condition. The rate of homicide in the 20th century is about a tenth of what it was in the 17th century. Things do evolve. We have largely abolished slavery in the world. We've accomplished some consensus about moral principles. And the only real challenge is how to avoid our sense of enlightenment making us be the enemy. Steve Cull has a really nice article on why do Muslims hate us. They see us as relating to them in a humiliating way, that we are the enlightened beings from a lofty perch telling them what they have to give up in order right. to be modern and enlightened. And that's what they're resenting. But in some ways, I do feel like we're more enlightened. I mean, certainly in our treatment of women. I know. I'm not a complete moral relativist. I do have those values. We all have to proceed from our convictions. We just have to realize that lots of other people have them and they're different. They're doing the same to us. They see us as morally deficient. Right. So it's a contest.
history is a natural experiment in which people vote both with their feet and in terms of what ideologies survive people being exposed to other ideas and which ones don't. Folks who come to Western countries from more hierarchical cultures, they don't go swarming back. The arc of history bends up, is the expression. Who said that? I'm not sure. The road ahead will not always be smooth. We may again with tear-drenched eyes have to stand before the beard of some courageous civil rights worker whose life will be snuffed out by the dastardly acts of bloodthirsty mobs. But difficult and painful as it is, we must walk on in the days ahead with an audacious faith in the future. Let us realize that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Let us realize that William Cullen Bryant is right. Truth crushed to earth will rise again. Let us go out realizing that the Bible is right. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. The problem, I think, Dan, and I'm going to lose a lot of your listeners with this, that all problems starts with religion. Religion teaches people to ignore facts. That sets you up to believe in anything. It's teaching bad thinking. Yes. So that's how you get people who can say, keep your government hands off my Medicare. People who can deny that there's climate change. People who can deny science. And most of your political arguments are with people who are religious. Yeah. And I love to make fun of people to their face about it. I'm not hip. <laughs> and if I can make fun of your religion to your face and it hurts your feelings, then you really don't believe what you believe. If you really think that I'm going to hell and you're going to heaven, then why would you get your feelings hurt? Right. You should just feel bad for me. Exactly. If I'm sitting there eating a bacon sandwich and I go, ah, this is good for you, you're not going to feel bad, are you? Right. You're going to feel bad for me. Here's a problem with religion. It only works in proportion to your certainty about the truth of it. The harder you believe, the more you're comforted. So the people who question your faith stand against your comforts. So how can you see them as anything but enemies? Faith and tolerance are hard to combine. Remember Nick Berg? He was an American captured in Iraq by Islamic militants. They cut his head off and posted a video of it online. What would I say if I were him, with the cameras on me, about to die? Putting aside that I would not be allowed to ad-lib and that even if I were, I would stammer and cry and beg for my life. Putting aside that my heart would be hurling itself against my chest, pounding in my ears, and I'd be too afraid to think. I would say, don't let the sight of what is about to happen make you become them. I never watched that video, but just imagining it, I feel something primal. I want to find that executioner and hold him down, put a knife to his neck, and say to him, you see now, you sick fuck, you see what it's like? But I think if we don't stop going with our guts, we won't make it. We have to try to get above the fray a little, look down at it, not as people on one side or the other, but as God would. Because if there is a God, he is not a partisan the way a religious fundamentalist imagines. He is not a nationalist as nationalists imagine. He wouldn't hate the other side because to him there would be no other side. 
He would see in all our hearts, understand our pain, want us to do better. It is an awful child who, while cutting off the head of a screaming human being, says, God is great? Who imagines God is on his side in that moment? Who imagines that God is narrow and cruel? That has to be a greater heresy than my atheism. If you imagine God is as small as you, then you are not religious or there is no point to being religious. Don't say God is great to praise him. Say it to remind yourself that there is more truth than your little eyes can perceive. Say it to help you imagine that someone can love your enemies, even if you're too weak. Mr. Hickok will lie beside two brothers. One he likely killed, the other he killed for certain, and he's been killed now in turn. So much blood. And on the battlefields of the Brothers' War, I saw more blood than this. And asked then after the purpose, and did not know, and don't know the purpose now. But know now to testify that, not knowing, I believe. St. Paul tells us, by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. Whether we be Jew or Gentile, bond or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. For the body is not one member but many. He tells us, The eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of thee. Nay, much more those members of the body which seem to be more feeble, and those members of the body which we think of as less honorable, all are necessary. He, he says that, there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one to another. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Play a game with me. Close your eyes. Imagine that you don't know your religion, or even if you have one, Imagine that you don't know if you are rich or poor, if you live in a house, apartment, shanty, that you don't know if you own a car, an SUV, a bike, or if you have to walk everywhere and use public transportation. You don't know if you have any illnesses. You don't know what your gender is. You don't know what your sexual preferences are. You don't know anything about yourself. Imagine that. Now open your eyes and write a law. That's the show. If you ever shop at Amazon.com, please go through the link on myaclonicjerk.com. It won't cost you a thing, but Amazon will give us a little kickback. You could tell people you're a patron of the arts, and it'll be true, even though all you did was buy a blender. We're now available on Stitcher, which is a great option for those of you who don't use iTunes. For those of you who do use iTunes, thanks for all the nice reviews. They're a real shot in the arm for me. Check out jimmydorecomedy.com to find out all the ways you can hear him online and in person. Thanks to Jimmy, David Allswing, Brian Petrovka, Christo Peskis, Arye Brown, and Lee Ross. Thanks to Demorge Brown and Benny Arthur for their hilarious turn in Plague Crash Follies. Thanks to Isaac Witte for his comedy and to Elorfin for his bit on the Veil of Ignorance. Check out the website for more info on the show and everyone you heard. Thank you for listening.
Please share your thoughts on the Facebook page or email me at mailbox at myaclonicjerk.com. Peace! And we were Christians. Right. Are, are um, you eating? No. Please stop eating. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, go. Thank you very much. When is it going to be broadcast? Thank you. Yeah, maybe now you'll finally listen to the podcast when you can hear yourself. <laughs> okay, send me the link. It's on iTunes, you asshole. Just go to iTunes and look for my name. Can I let you say asshole? <laughs>